Marvel Comics was founded back in 1961 and originally kicked off as a decently successful enterprise after several decades under a different name and with different people running it with the advent of the Fantastic Four, a superhero team meant to appeal more to teenagers and older readers in contrast to work focused first and foremost on children, a demographic focus also embraced by most other comic book publishers at the time, including rival DC Comics, and their Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman properties. The introduction of other characters, which were more human-seeming than the two-dimensional, godlike heroes that had dominated comic books until that period, new entries like Spider-Man, the Hulk, and the X-Men, likewise resonated with a larger audience across more demographics, which helped Marvel's sales numbers surge, and which led to the development of more and more characters, many of them initially introduced in established publications, only to go on to get their own spin-off series later. This approach to introducing new heroes and villains and super teams and so on allowed Marvel to use existing franchises to try out new ones and then boost them by promoting them to their existing audience via channels that were already relatively successful. By 1968, the company was selling 50 million comics a year and eventually pulled ahead of rival DC Comics in 1972 on the strength of its interconnected superhero publications and expansion into sci-fi, satire, martial arts, and horror-themed properties. The company expanded into audio with a few 1975-era superhero-themed radio series and then events as well with its own MarvelCon comic book convention. In the mid-1980s, Marvel, which by then was owned by a parent company called Marvel Entertainment Group, was sold to the owner of cosmetics company Revlon, and he took the company public in 1991, using it as collateral for debt that he used to acquire several other entertainment industry companies. The company also doubled down on what you might think of as marketing gimmicks, ranging from swimsuit issues featuring their popular comic book heroines, collectible variant covers, and comic book-themed trading cards, and a slew of new crossovers between characters in their various comics that led to a huge number of continuity issues across the board because of the different worlds, the different background storylines and events in these varying characters' comic book series. The worlds they occupied were a little bit or significantly different from each other, and coming up with clever ways to throw these characters together made explaining those conflicts tricky for a long while. A bunch of celebrated artists working at Marvel left to create Image Comics in 1992, and a series of consolidations and closures throughout the industry over the course of the decade pushed Marvel to experiment with Saturday morning cartoons, Christian-themed comic book characters, and even outsourcing the production of comics by basically renting out its intellectual property, its characters then being spun into comic book series produced by other comic book companies. In 1996, Marvel Entertainment Group filed for bankruptcy due to a confluence of industry-wide issues, its scattershot approach to leveraging its intellectual property, and all that debt that was used as leverage by its owner to acquire other companies. And it was bought by Toy Biz in 1997, which used it as the core of a new corporation called Marvel Enterprises. 
By the turn of the century, Marvel was producing a portfolio of new comic book offerings, their financials stabilized by their new owners, and some of their titles farmed out to be adapted into films, like Men in Black, Blade, and then in 2000 and 2002, X-Men and Spider-Man. The company expanded into digital comic book offerings by 2007, but in late 2009, it was pulled in an entirely different direction when the Walt Disney Company announced that it would buy Marvel for a cash and stock deal of about $4 billion. Initially, this relationship resulted in some tidying up within Marvel, closing down some less successful series and experiments, and then using the comics side of the business to create crossovers with some of Disney's other properties, like Once Upon a Time, a fantasy TV series that was broadcast on ABC, which Disney also owns, alongside some more conventional Disney character comics, and eventually a series of Star Wars comics as well, as Disney also owns Lucasfilm, the company behind Star Wars. At this point in their history, Marvel had already spun off several TV and film adaptations of its characters and storylines, and had at different times contained sub-brands like Marvel Films and Marvel Studios, which were responsible for different aspects of those projects. In the early 2000s, though, that Studios offshoot brand began to reclaim, by buying them back or refusing to renew them, the rights to various characters that it had previously licensed out across various mediums to other companies. So in late 2005, it got the film rights to Iron Fist back from New Line Cinema, and it got the rights to The Hulk back from Universal in 2006. It also got the rights for Black Widow back from Lionsgate around this time, and it got the TV, but not the film rights back, for Spider-Man from Sony in early 2009. In 2008, the company released a film starring one of its somewhat lesser-known, let's say medium-grade characters, because he wasn't prime stock like Spider-Man or the X-Men, but he was fairly popular across several of their comic series. They released a film starring Iron Man, And this is a character that has been licensed out and had films under production starring him since 1990. And Universal, 20th Century Fox, and New Line Cinema all had the rights to do so at various times during that period. But Marvel got those rights back in 2005 and started working on this project. And the idea was to use Iron Man as an introduction to a world that Marvel would build starting from a fairly well-understood baseline of a normal human who's rich and smart, but still a normal human who's then pulled into a larger universe in which a lot of weird stuff is happening. Super-powered people are cropping up all over the place, and a diverse cast of characters, from the Hulk to Thor to Captain America and Black Widow, are all thrown together, forced to work as a team, and become various sorts of legendary, creating the founding mythos for the larger universe they wanted to build. The first Iron Man movie, through the first Avengers movie, was organized as Phase 1 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This universe defined by a shared cast of characters and rules and mythologies, and the deployment of films would work like Marvel Comics have long worked. New characters would be introduced in other characters' movies, and there would be all sorts of crossovers and backstories that you could check out by watching earlier movies to fill in the narrative blanks. 
So far, the MCU has had three complete phases of movies, and the fourth will finish in 2022 with the second Black Panther movie. The fifth phase will begin in 2023 and end a year later, and phase six will launch in 2025. This universe extended into TV as well back in 2013, beginning with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on Disney-owned ABC, followed by shows on streaming services like Netflix and Hulu, the latter of which Disney now owns. These streaming TV efforts expanded still further with the launch of Disney+, Plus, for which the company has been pulling those outsourced, Netflix-based characters back into their own Disney-owned platform, Fold, and for which they've been spinning out new stories for their cinematic characters, as was the case with WandaVision and the Falcon and Winter Soldier TV shows, both of which starred characters from Avengers films. This all-encompassing effort, which, a very small spoiler here, has even gone so far as to pull previous films made by non-Marvel media companies, like the X-Men films and Blade, into the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe fold, has been immensely profitable for Marvel. And part of that has been the consequence of new entertainment offerings being predicated on existing, known quantities within their larger intellectual property portfolio. What I'd like to talk about today are efforts by other companies to approximate some of that same success and the larger seeming obsession by media companies to capitalize on nostalgia, familiarity, and predictability. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Verge, and it's entitled, Netflix is Turning the Gray Man into a Cinematic Universe. The Gray Man is an action film starring, among other pretty well-known actors, Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans, the latter of whom played Captain America in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it has, by all indications, been a pretty mixed bag for Netflix, where it debuted in mid-July of 2022, after a limited theatrical release a week earlier. I say it's a mixed bag because in terms of audience and critical response, it's not done terribly well. It netted an average rating of 5.6 out of 10, based on 223 critical reviews, according to Rotten Tomatoes, and Metacritic gave it a 49 out of 100, based on another 55 critical reviews. In contrast, the Rotten Tomatoes audience score, which is more hackable using sock puppet accounts, but can also at times better represent the views of normal film watchers, as opposed to professional critics, is at 91% as of the day I'm recording this. And Netflix, which doesn't divulge much in the way of numbers, typically, unless they're pretty good numbers, says that the film pulled in 88.55 million hours of viewing time, in its first three days on the streaming service, and became the most-watched film in 84 countries during that same period. So again, a pretty mixed bag, which is part of why that piece from The Verge about Netflix being keen to build a cinematic universe around this film is so interesting. Before explaining why they might want to get in on the cinematic universe game, though, let's talk a bit about something you might have noticed that many of the most popular, well-funded, well-promoted films and TV shows of the past several decades have been sequels, remakes, adaptations, or reboots. 48 of the top 50 highest-grossing films worldwide of all time are part of a series, a cinematic universe, or are remakes. Of the only two that are not, Avatar 
is getting a sequence of sequels in December of 2022, December of 2024, December of 2026, and December of 2028. And by definition, Titanic doesn't have a sequel, but it will have a remastered theatrical re-release around Valentine's Day in 2023. So I will let you decide whether that counts or not. Notably, on that top 50 list are 10 films from the Marvel Cinematic Universe and several from the DC version of the same. At the moment, the MCU tops the list of highest global gross franchises with 29 films bringing in an average of nearly a billion dollars apiece, followed by Star Wars with 12 films averaging not quite 900 million dollars apiece, Spider-Man which is partially owned by Sony alongside Marvel in his film iterations, is third, with 12 films bringing in just over $800 million apiece. And then the Harry Potter series, James Bond films, Avengers films, which are part of that larger Marvel universe, but are also a cluster of four films unto themselves, followed by Batman, the Fast and Furious series, and X-Men, the latter of which was licensed by Fox in its film iterations, but which was recently brought back into the Marvel fold when Disney acquired Fox all except the news division, basically, for $71.3 billion, which also bought them back the rights to Deadpool, the Fantastic Four, and other Marvel comic book characters. You will note that all of those top franchises are spin-off capable entities. Marvel and Star Wars and DC and Harry Potter properties have been incredibly successfully leveraged by their respective owners to create not just core films, but also spin-off films and shows and video games and comic books and other such properties. Even seemingly simplistic entities like the Fast and Furious series, which is up to nine core films at the moment, with another two planned for 2023 and 2024, had a spin-off film in 2019 called Hobbs and Shaw. When a universe has become big and beloved enough that you can build out separate characters into their own thing like that, you have the potential to get a lot bigger a lot faster and to hit different audiences than the original core offering. You can also create branching storylines and flesh out the central universe. So with each new Harry Potter film, even those that don't have Harry Potter in them, you see more of the universe that these characters occupy. And that plants the seed for further future branching properties, characters, concepts, events, and so on. If you don't have spin-off potential, remakes tend to do pretty well too. All of the new James Bond films, Dune, Sex in the City, King Kong, the Disney live-action and CGI remakes of Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King, if you can utilize an existing bit of intellectual property in this way, there's a good chance it will stand out from the pack of other less-known characters and worlds and storylines when people are deciding what tickets to buy. So remakes are pretty good bets when you're looking to dust off old assets to find new utility, especially when that dusting is done alongside other efforts that might be more risky. New characters, new worlds, new concepts that may or may not take off. The green lighting of remakes operate under a similar theory then, to straight up sequels, because the numbers tend to be a bit more predictable, because there's familiar intellectual property involved, and thus production companies and other media world entities can line their production calendars with such projects. And that gives them as close to reliable, steady income as you can get in that industry. 
Said another way, if you're taking a handful of bets on films and TV shows that will cost you something like 10 to 100 million dollars apiece, it doesn't hurt to have the same number, or maybe even twice as many, sequels and remakes in production. Because it's more likely that you'll have a good sense of what those will actually cost and how much you will make in profit from those investments, and thus how your financial year will turn out, even if some of the experiments bomb. Many remakes also help media companies make money from older TV shows and films, because when a new Lion King comes out, it reminds customers that the original animated film exists, and the company then tends to do decently well selling streaming access to that earlier film. And the same is sometimes true of other products, like lunchboxes and video games and t-shirts and tickets to theme parks that feature those characters. There are knock-on profits involved when you make a remake. Adaptations are a slightly bigger bet with less predictable profits, but they're also a means of testing a market before throwing a bunch of money at a new project with completely unknown audience resonance. James Bond has an existing audience today because of all the Bond films that have been made, but before that, he was already a character in a book series that sold pretty well, which made investing in a few films early on an easier bet because, bare minimum, some of those readers would likely be interested. And the character had already proved himself compelling enough in book form to get people to shell out some money to check out his hijinks. So he seemed like a bigger bet on balance to be made into a movie character than some no-name person who did exactly the same things and had exactly the same villains. The same is true of Harry Potter and now the characters in The Grey Man, which is also an adaptation of a novel published in 2009. A lot of comic book characters have been adapted of late, including perhaps most overtly characters like Batman and all the denizens of the Marvel Universe, but also lesser-known characters and teams like the Umbrella Academy, which was adapted for TV streaming by Netflix a few years ago and recently released its third season, and The Boys, which was adapted from an early 2000s comic book series by Amazon, both of which, by the way, are also superhero-themed, though quite a bit darker than most of Marvel's offerings. Another way of saying cinematic universe is franchise, because they both imply there will be a bunch of interconnected storylines and characters woven between the individual entries in the series. Today, though, because of how films and TV shows are consumed, primarily through streaming services, those assorted projects can be deployed in such a way that a larger, non-linear story is told. Here's what the Avengers are up to over here in this film, but at the street level in this TV show, here's what Daredevil's doing. And in this TV show on a different network, here's Miss Marvel showing this perspective of that same world. These characters can then be slammed together periodically, but otherwise, most of the time, they go their own way, do their own things, serve somewhat or wildly different audiences, and create an expansive, multi-demographic media entity that encompasses many mediums. And all that slamming together generates gobs of new content, all of which amplifies all the other content, and that is ideal for a world in which platforms are trying to keep customers' attention for longer than a month at a time, in order to make sure they keep on renewing their streaming service membership.
So you could turn James Bond from a franchise into a cinematic universe by spinning off some characters from the series, making TV shows based in that same world that have plots and locations that run alongside stuff that's happening in the films. And that would potentially increase the reach and profitability of all of the entries in the series, because they would amplify each other's capacity to bring in viewers and sell products while also reaching more audiences. What we're looking at with the Gray Man is something along these lines, but like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and unlike some other films that have been successful and only then had a franchise dreamed up around them, this one is planned from the beginning, rather than trying to shoehorn a single offering into a series later on. Netflix is planning a sequel with the same main characters and a spin-off that will take place in the same universe as the main sequence of films but which will presumably star different people as it will focus on a different aspect of that universe. DC, Marvel's rival from way back in the day and a relative latecomer to the comic book universe business model, has struggled to achieve the same interconnectedness and unification between its entries and instead has gobs of different actors playing Batman alone and several different cuts of some of their core films. So this isn't an automatic home run play, and it's not easy to do. It requires a lot of control over the destiny of a franchise over a very long period of time and across several different mediums. And few companies are able to wield that kind of financial and organizational authority like Disney can. It is a true behemoth in the media space and owns just a silly number of franchises and potential franchises and its massive portfolio of intellectual property alongside the many platforms it owns through which it can deliver all that content. So this is something pretty much everyone wants to do these days, but adapting and sequeling and remaking are easier for most media companies at the moment and tend to bring better and more reliable short-term results than the alternatives. Netflix, though, is keen to compete with Disney's Disney Plus streaming service, and to a lesser degree HBO's Max streaming service, which may soon be folded into the larger Discovery-branded streaming service, both of which have tons of well-regarded intellectual property on offer. This move, with the Gray Man, then, would seem to be part of a gambit by Netflix to stay relevant in an ever-expanding intellectual property-based universe favoring media landscape. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The 90s by Chuck Klosterman. Chuck Klosterman is an author whose work I was already familiar with and tend to enjoy. He writes very excellent narrative nonfiction work, usually with some kind of historical bend typically pretty well-researched, but also just a joy to read. And this one is about the decade of the 90s, but also explores the concept of the 90s and how it maybe wasn't just limited from 1990 to 1999 and might have expanded a bit before that and a bit after that, and the cultural landmarks that probably cap either end of what we now think of as the 90s today. And he goes into some of the historical moments that you might remember, might not remember if you were alive and conscious during this period of history. For me, as somebody who was born in 85, it was just a heck of a lot of fun to review some of these moments that I remembered and half remembered, and to also get some really insightful analysis of some of these happenings and what they mean and what they led to and where they came from and other data points and explorations of that sort. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The 90s by Chuck Klosterman. 
You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a bundle of my other projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And you can find my newest project, which is an email full of links and analysis related to the climate and renewable energy and the green economy and things of that nature at climatehappenings.com. See what I did there? That's my attempt to create my own little Colin extended universe. Also within that universe, feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and the like. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.